All right, so let's begin uh, four verses only. Hebrews 2.16, I want to begin at and read through and including the first verse of chapter 3. This is concerning our great and glorious mediator, Jesus Christ. For truly he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to run to the help of them that are tempted. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the Apostle and High Priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ, the Apostle, the High Priest of our profession, the author and the captain of our salvation. How great and glorious He is. And so many of our... So many of our inward illnesses, as it were, spring from our unfamiliarity with Him, who is our life and our salvation, our song, our shield, our son. So enlarge Him, O Lord, and by Your Spirit magnify Him through Your Word in our eyes, so that our faith might lift up our whole person, even body and soul and spirit as we gaze upon Jesus Christ, our great mediator, who is the center and the glory of heaven even now. May we study him in your presence. Amen. Well, we're in the Shorter Catechism. Last week, we looked at question 21, which is this. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The answer, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Glorious words. We, we, we're dividing question or answer 21 up into two major doctrines. The first we talked about last week, uh, the eternal generation of the Son, which is encapsulated in that one phrase, who being the eternal Son of God. We talked at length about that. We could have talked much longer, uh, but we tried to sum it up as best as we can. uh, The eternal generation of the Son. And then secondly, and we began, but this morning this is our major focus, secondly is the doctrine of what's called the hypostatic union. In other words, the, the personal union of two natures in one person. Two distinct natures in one person forever, as the Catechism has it. And it's important, and and we're going to follow this through a little more this morning, but it's important to understand that the union is not in a generic being in which the divine and the nature, uh, divine and human come together, but it is, in fact, the union of the human nature with the person of the eternal Son of God. It's a personal union because it's the second person or hypostasis of the Trinity 
that takes on human nature. So you understand it's not like this, this, this generic body, as it were, in which two natures fill. No, it, it, it's not that at all, and, and hopefully we'll make that more clear as we go on. But that's such a crucial, crucial point when we come to think of him as being both impassable in his divine nature. It's not that the divine nature is impassable and the human nature is passable. That's true in a sense, but the truer truth, and this has such a bearing on the gospel, and the early, the Nicene fathers understood this so clearly, that it is the person himself, the mediator, who is both impassable and passable. He's passable, he's impassable in his divine nature, but he, the person himself, because of that union, by his human nature, is passable and can suffer in his person, not just in the nature. Now, that's, that can be very controversial, and some of your maybe alarms went off as I said that, but this is very consistent with the Nicene Doctrine, and as it goes through, uh, we can see it in the Westminster Confession as well. And it's a, it's a, a risky truth, if you will, uh, and, and heresies have sprung out of trying to keep us too close from that personal union, and we're going to see some of them. Uh, but it's an extremely important point because the gospel, the power of the gospel, hinges on this, that God himself was manifest in the flesh, that God himself purchased the church with his own blood. That's, there's ironic, there's paradoxical language there, but it is the language of scripture, and it's important for the life and the heart of our faith to, to understand this. Okay, I don't want to belabor that point because we're going to come back to it in, in the historical context. But let's move on. So last week we looked at eternal generation. Um, we heard, as it were, from uh, that great heresiarch, the arch-heretic Arius, uh, who said if the Son was begotten, thinking of that eternal generation, if the Son was begotten, then there must have been a time when he was not. A very, very famous statement. Uh, extremely famous. Athanasius retorted, uh, not in his presence right when he said that, but this is Athanasius's retort to that, that the divine generation must not be compared to the nature of men because God is not as man. That's such a great statement. And there's a rule of interpretation and understanding in there. We talked about that last week. We don't know, we do not know, we cannot know God purely by knowing ourselves. We know him by his word. And then by his word, coming to know him, we come to know ourselves truly. That's the, the proper order. There's an interplay between the two, knowing ourselves, knowing, knowing our needs. We come to know God, but primarily we know God through his word and in coming to know him through his word, we come truly to know ourselves in a way that as we know, if we look out at the world, uh, one cannot know himself if he does not know God. That, that is just a, a, a dogmatic fact. So that was the direction Athanasius was coming from. If, if Arius, if his starting point was man, and he interpreted God through his lens of understanding man, and, and therefore saw the generation of the father, the, the father generating the son in a human fashion, and therefore concluding, as is the case with humans, that there must have been a time when he was not, uh, he, he was forming, in essence, an idol, because his starting point was man. And he was worshipping an idol, a fabrication of his own mind as to who the mediator actually was. And he thought that he was a creature, an exalted creature, no doubt, but nonetheless 
separate from the creator himself, produced and, and created by him out of nothing. That was Arius's view. Athanasius, on the other hand, his starting point was God and his word. Uh, just such, a, again, it's a crucial point. And so the, the, the outcome of all of this was, in fact, the Nicene Creed. And we quoted from it. I'll, I'll, I'll just quote the crucial point here that has to do with the Son and the eternal generation of the Son. Begotten of the Father, says the Nicene Creed. Begotten of the Father before all ages. That's, that's to contest Arius's claim there was a time when he was not. No, he was begotten before all ages. In other words, in eternity. God of God, light of light. And there's that, that text out of Hebrews. Hebrews 1.3, the brightness of his glory with, with which Athanasius made, made so much ado over. The brightness of his glory, the radiance, the effulgence of his glory, like the radiance of the sun. In fact, he said, this is Athanasius' words, that the sun is the eternal radiance of the eternal light. And they cannot be separated. They're one light, one God only. Uh, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance. And that's that great classic Greek word, homoousios, of the same one and the same substance or essence, Father, Son, and in fact, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was not, at, 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 was not the controversy at the time. It was the Son, the nature of the Son. So there we have it. Then it goes on, and this, this wonderfully brings us into uh, this next consideration of the hypostatic union. The, the Nicene Creed saying, being of one substance with the Father, through whom the worlds were made, then goes on, who for us men and for our salvation. That's a wonderfully famous phrase, who for us men and for our salvation. There's the economy, as opposed to the imminent trinity. There's the economy or the, the, the economic trinity, the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, add extra, coming out from themselves for us and our salvation. And that's where the mediator uh, takes central stage. Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Well, that, that says everything that we want to know. And we, we can just revolve around that sentence if we want to. But we're not studying the Nicene Creed. We're studying the Shorter Catechism. And so, picking up at the end of question 21, as we come to the hypostatic union now, we're leaving eternal generation, uh, and we're coming to the hypostatic union. Uh, we're, we're th we were thinking of eternal generation. Now, you could say, as we come to the next point, we're, we're thinking of not his eternal generation, but his temporal generation. You could, you could put it that way. In other words, the incarnation is his temporal generation. As he was, as, as the scripture says, as he was made flesh and dwelt among us, which reminds me as I say that last week, just, uh, just again to, to go back into last week and mention this because it's a great category, it, it, it's a great way to understand the mediator in these three ways. As he is God, very God, then as he is with God, and we're using, we're using Johannine language here from, from John chapter 1, we think of him as he is God in the beginning, also in the beginning as he 
is with God, and then as he was made flesh and dwelt among us. Those are the three categories. And, and, and we've been speaking, we, we spent the better part of two weeks talking about the mediator as God, as very God, when we talked about his attributes, the divine attributes, the incommunicable attributes primarily, his aseity, his simplicity, uh, his impassibility, his infinity, all of these things cannot be transferred to the creator. And this is what the mediator is. That's why it, it wasn't as if, okay, we're studying the Father when we look at the incommunicable attributes, and, but that's not our subject. Our subject is the mediator. So why are we studying the Father? Well, we were studying the Father, but we were studying the Son as well, the mediator, and his incommunicable attributes in the divine nature. Then we spent another two weeks, more or less, thinking about the mediator as he is with God. We thought about the eternal generation. We thought before that about the covenant of redemption. In both of those cases, we're looking as the, at the mediator as he is with God or with the Father, to be more specific. But now, and now for the rest of the weeks of this class, we're solidly in this third category of thinking of him as he was made flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, and so the hypostatic union is the, really the, the incarnation is the beginning of that. And when we say incarnation, we're not, to be specific, we're not speaking of the birth. We're speaking of his conception. You understand that, it, that Mary conceived. What did Mary conceive? She conceived the mediator. She conceived the eternal son of God, who, and we'll come to this in a little bit of detail in, in, in a few moments, but she, what she conceived was all was the work of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see that, and the so the work of the Holy Spirit forming and fashioning from her substance. This is confessional language, forming from her substance that body endowed with a, with rational powers. In other words, a reasonable a reasonable soul, a true body, a reasonable soul. This is what the Holy Spirit fashioned, and the Son of God came to what was prepared for him, and he assumed it and took it actively, aggressively even, you could say, eagerly, to himself. And at that, the moment, the moment that that union was affected by the Son of God, the eternal Son of God himself, the moment that union was affected, and there wasn't a moment in time when the, the body and the soul, as it were, were in Mary's womb, and it was just sitting there unpersonified or without, without personhood because that did not have personhood. There's only one person, the hypostatic union. It's one person. It's the eternal Son of God. So that the, the, out of the substance of her body, what the Holy Spirit fashioned, was not a person. It was not a, a baby in the proper sense of the word. It wasn't a baby, a human baby, until the Son of God joined himself to it and suddenly it had personhood. And then Mary, that is what Mary conceived and gave birth to. Not what, but who. So, so you understand that. Okay, well, let's, let's jump in then to the hypostatic union. Uh, question 21 finishes up, the eternal Son of God became man and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. There's four categories there. He's God. That was established at the Council of Nicaea, 325. And then He's man, God and man. We're going to come to that in just a moment. That was established uh, formally in 381 at the, con at, at the Council of Constantinople. Fully man, fully God, fully man. In two distinct natures, one person forever. So those are the parameters or the perimeters 
within which we must think about the mediator. He's God, he's man. How are they joined? The two distinct natures do not get confused or mixed. They stay distinct, and yet they're united, not just conjoined uh, or juxtaposed, but they are united. They're united in one divine person, the Son of God. Okay, question 20. So, so, so that's going to be kind of our guiding rule, those four points. God, man, two distinct natures, one person forever. But then we come to the, the nitty-gritty, as it were, of it in question 22. And here's the incarnation. And this is, this is kind of what we want to go step by step through. Question 22, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Answer, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself the true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. So here's the person. And again, this is the point I just made, but it's so important. And as I said, heresies have sprung out of a misunderstanding of this. It's not the nature that's conceived. It's not the nature that's born, the human nature, I mean. It's the person in both natures that is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost didn't conceive her. Mary, uh, him, I'm sorry. The Holy Ghost did not conceive the Son of God. Mary the human person conceived him by the power of the Holy Ghost. And born of her, yet without sin. That completes question and answer 22. So let's, let's take them phrase by phrase and try, try to fairly briefly go through these. Uh, first point, taking to himself. The eternal Son of God became man by taking to himself. This, as I've said, was not passively. It was very actively. We're, we we uh, are conceived and we are born very passively. Maybe when we're born, there's, a, there's action going on. But we're certainly conceived passively. We, we made no determination in the matter, did we? Of course we didn't. Had nothing to do with it. Uh, we can't say it was against our will. We can't say it was with our will because there was no will. We were conceived and suddenly there we were. We changed from non-being for all eternity into being. Suddenly, here we were. And uh, in the large scope of things, it was just moments ago, really, whether you're young or old in here, in the large scope of the passage of time, we all just showed up in this world. And we're all just about to depart this world. That's how ephemeral we are. Which is a wonderful thought only when you compare it to the glory of God's eternity and that he united himself to our flesh and took us to himself. Then we can think very depressing thoughts like that in a very safe and profitable way. We're nothing. We're withering leaves. That's all we are. So he became man. He took to himself... And again, this has been in his mind from all eternity to do this. And now in the fullness of time, as Hebrews 2 says, which we just read, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. In other words, by extension, the seed of the woman that was promised to bruise uh, and even to crush the head of the serpent. So you see the promise is now suddenly, it's appearing in the world in concrete form. God is so faithful, and he may take a thousand years to fulfill a promise. He may take two thousand years. But if it came out of his mouth, 
It, it is impossible, and we should never even conceive that it won't come to pass. That is how great he is. And so, when he comes into the world, and I'm very fond of quoting this, this verse, Hebrews 10.5, when he cometh into the world, he saith, a body hast thou prepared for me. Behold, I come to do thy will. It's such a glorious verse. And in fact, this is what Owen says about this. When Christ says, Behold, I come. Owen, John Owen says, By this call of Christ, behold, I come. The eyes of all creatures in heaven and on earth ought to be fixed on him to behold the glorious work he had undertaken from eternity and the accomplishment of it. The eyes of all creatures in heaven and earth, I'm repeating him now, ought to be fixed on him, in whose person, this is Owen still, in whose person the glory of all the holy properties and perfections of the divine nature are manifested and shine, and shine forth. Well, this is the apostle and high priest of our profession. And by this glorious constitution of his person in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he was now fitted to execute, to fulfill all the offices of a mediator in the office of prophet, priest, and king, which starting actually not next week, next week Dan is going to give a report of the presbytery in sun, the Sunday school hour next week, but beginning the week after that, when, when I'm back here, we're going to start looking then uh, at the offices. So we're going to move on to question 23, 24 and following. Christ is prophet, priest and king. But we need to see the, the, the glorious constitution is the way Owen was always putting it. The glorious constitution of his person. We need to see that because that is the foundation of all that he performs and that he fulfills as the mediator. Alright, well let's, let's move on. A true body. Taking to himself a true body. Well, this has to do, among other things, with the very earliest heresy, even was cropping up in apostolic times, which is, is docetism. It comes from a Greek word, dakeo, which means for something to seem a certain way. And that the heresy, essentially, of the docetist was that, well, God is so great that he can't take on a real human form, because this is kind of a, 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 a platonic thought, uh, that, that, that the material world is somehow corrupt, polluted, and God is so great, he can't be corrupt or polluted. He's always invisible. That's all he'll ever be. So, so the incarnation did not involve God manifest in actual flesh, but it was the appearance of flesh. That's the heresy of docetism. And you can even see in the writings, especially of the Apostle John, he's, he's, he's already tackling uh, this issue. I mean, the, the very first... Uh, verse of his epistle, that which was from the beginning, I love John's, John's language, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about the eternal Son of God, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled of the word of life, that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. So you, you see, he's saying that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, actually took on palpable flesh and blood so that he could bleed and suffer and die to provide a propitiation. This is the whole point of him coming into the world. So a true body, utterly necessary. He was truly conceived. He was truly born. He was truly circumcised. He 
truly hungered and thirsted and got tired. He truly died, was crucified, was truly buried. We can go down the list. He truly rose from the dead in bodily form. He truly ascended, and he's truly returning to judge the quick and the dead. This, again, is very confessional language. All right, a reasonable soul. Here's another crucial point, and it's all in in this little sentence in question 22. A reasonable soul. Uh, This addresses another heresy in the early church, which followed the Arian controversy. So you have the the docetic controversy, uh, or heresy, if you will, and then you have the Arian controversy or heresy, and then you have the uh, uh, Apollinarian heresy or controversy. So we just want to talk for a moment about that because that has an intimate bearing on this, this little phrase, a reasonable soul. Not just a body, but a soul as well. Well, who was Apollinaris? He was the bishop of Laodicea. He was a very close friend, in fact, of Athanasius. Uh, and Athanasius had the very, very dismal duty of calling him out. Um, once he began veering off uh, into a heretical direction. But it was because of his jealousy to to protect the divinity of the Son that he erred too far in the opposite direction uh, and and made the humanity of Christ something less than full humanity. So he wanted him to have a body, but the interior life was filled by the Logos, the, 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 the Son of God himself, the Word, filled the interior so that the man Jesus didn't really have a mind or he didn't have rational powers that were human but they were divine rational powers well that's not fully human Uh, that was Apollinarius's idea no reasonable soul in other words he had a soul like animals you could say have the breath of life and they have a soul they're not like rocks uh, or, or trees, which are a little more living than rocks. But animals, they're, they're, they're looking around, they're moving. They, they have a soul. They have an animal soul, as it were. I don't want to get into the minutia of, well, what is the soul right now? But that's what Apollinaris saw humans as having. That we have a real body and we have a soul like animals have soul. But the rational powers, which are the very thing that distinguish us from animals, that was divine. It wasn't human. Well... This is what Apollinaire said. He's, he, Christ, is neither whole man nor whole God, but God and man mixed. Okay, that's a heresy. The two natures mixed, not distinct, but mixed. Well, this is what Gregory of Nazianzus, our hero in this case, said, and we quoted from him before. Gregory of Nazianzus asked the question, well, Apollinaris, what, what was it in us that needed salvation? Well, what needed salvation was the very thing that sinned. He came, Christ came for us men and for our salvation. So man sinned. But what was it in man that sinned? Well, it was the whole man, the entire man. But particularly the mind of man is what sinned. It wasn't his body that sinned. His mind took his body into an act of sin, but it began in the mind. And so Gregory of Nazianzus says this, and this is one of the most famous quotes in church history, and it's, it's lovely. What he, that is what Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. What he has not assumed, he has not healed. If only, and this is Gregory continuing, if only half of Adam had fallen, then that which Christ assumes and heals might only be half as well. But as he needed flesh for the sake of the flesh, that's the true body, 
as he needed flesh for the sake of the flesh which had incurred condemnation, so too he needed mind for the sake of the mind. There's the reasonable soul. For that which received the command in the garden was in fact that which failed to keep it. That therefore which transgressed stood most in need of salvation and thus he took on himself a mind. So that refuted the Apollinarian heresy and that teaching was formally condemned as I said earlier, 381 at the Council of Constantinople which was the second ecumenical council. Nicaea, 325 established the full Godhead Jesus Christ is fully God. Athanasius was one of the prime figures there. And then Constantinople, 381, the second council, acknowledged him to be fully man. So there you have the square one and square two of our four squares of the formula. God and man, two distinct natures, one person forever. The next two clauses were resolved in the next two ecumenical councils, which come in 431 and 451. We're, we're going to be kind of light on this. We want to look at 431 a little bit, um, but we're not going to actually cover everything here. That would be too exhaustive for the time that we have. The Westminster Confession says this in regards to his manhood, Christ's manhood. He's very man with all the essential properties. All the essential properties. In other words, that's a reference, again, to not just a body, but a true body and a reasonable soul. So, we've gotten that far. We come to the next phrase. Being conceived, and this is where it really gets down, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. So, we've looked very intently at the Father and the Son, almost exclusively at the Father and the Son for all of our weeks so far. But suddenly here in this sentence of question 22, we have the entrance of the Holy Spirit. So we need to speak about the Holy Spirit for a moment. And he will be with the mediator from the conception onward. Onward. And, and, and we'll see that very much as we think about his, his work as prophet and priest and king. How intimately and inseparable the Holy Spirit himself, the Spirit of Christ, as he's called, is involved in enabling Christ, uh, even to the point of offering Himself up spotless through the eternal Spirit. Those are the words in in Hebrews. It's a wonderful text that that join the two together. Well, of course, the Holy Spirit, even though He's appearing in view now for the first time in our study, He's been at work since the beginning, just like the Father and the Son, sharing the same essence. And and just as we think of the mediator as from the first sin of man, now entering actively his office as mediator, not as he's made flesh and dwelt among us, but still only as he is with God, he's mediating between sinful man, sin-laden sin man, sin-burdened man, and a truly holy God. It's the only way that there can be any reconciliation. So he engaged immediately in his work. Well, at the same time, the Spirit entered into His work of testifying beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The Holy Spirit was there, even in the garden, crying out, as it were, to use the language of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what the Holy Spirit was doing all in the Old Testament times. Through every prophet, every prophet who ever prophesied was speaking by the Holy Spirit. Or as as Peter says, the Spirit of Christ who was in 
them, every one of those prophets, and who himself, the Holy Spirit through them, was testifying beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And so now we come to the incarnation, now the fullness of time, and now the Holy Spirit enters, as it were, into our sight, not, not actually in our sight, but into the, into the scenery, as it were, into the narrative. The eternal Son coming into the world, saying, a body you've prepared for me. He was coming to that body that was being prepared for him, even then by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary. Uh, I wish it was Christmas now, because I'm feeling very Christmassy when, when we use this kind of language. Here was the Holy Spirit overshadowing the Virgin Mary. And again, this is language that is very, very reminiscent of, of Genesis chapter 1. There was the Spirit of God hovering over the, the waters, over the, the formless void, uh, overshadowing, as it were, it. And there he is in his creative work in the creation, and here he is in his creative work with the second creation, not out of nothing, not ex nihilo, as, as was the case when the Father spoke things into being, although precisely you could say the Holy Spirit in his particular office of creation was forming out of what was already formed. And that's exactly what he was doing with the formlessness and the void, uh, so to speak, in Mary's womb. He was taking from her substance. That's a really important point, and it's confessional. Taking from her substance and forming out of it a true human body and endowing that body with a reasonable soul. And in the instant that that was done, there's no time lapse between. It's impossible that there could be. The Son of God assumed to himself, actively took it and gave it personhood because it was hypostatically or personally united to him. And that was the first moment of his humiliation. And he walked in that state of a humiliation all the way until his resurrection and ascension. And now he's in a state of exaltation. But not as if he's no longer for us. Now he's especially for us now that he's in his state of exaltation. So the angel said to Mary, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. A remarkable verse. That's Luke one thirty-five. And so Mary became, to use a very, very controversial word, Mary became at that moment theotokos. Now, theotokos is a word really in the, in the history of controversy in the early church, is almost as important, arguably as important, as homoousios. What does theotokos mean? It means God-bearer, or in, in the familiar language, mother of God. Well, as Protestants, we, we probably kind of um, wince a little bit at the thought of calling Mary the mother of God. But again, this is extremely an extremely orthodox point to confess Mary as the mother of God. Not everybody liked it. Uh, today, probably a lot of people don't like it. But again, very, very orthodox. It's Nicene language. Athanasius used it. Gregory of Nazianzus used it. We could, we could go down a long list of those orthodox fathers that used the term. The point was not to embellish or to magnify or to elevate Mary, but it was to assert and to maintain very dogmatically that Christ himself has true divinity. That's the point. 
She's the mother of God because she's the mother of Christ and Christ is God incarnate. It's a very simple syllogism. And yet it raised alarm bells, particularly for those who were trying to avoid the Apollinarian (laughs) heresy of mixing the two natures. So here enters Nestorius. Nestorius was the bishop of Constantinople beginning in the year 428. This was leading up to 431, the Council of Ephesus, which was, in fact, a very messy council. But let's speed on. Uh, Nestorius said this, Let no man call Mary mother of God, for it is impossible for God to be born of a woman. Well, as I said, his concern was to avoid the mistake of Apollinaris by mixing the natures, and so you lose the humanity and the immensity of the deity. He didn't want the humanity to be swallowed up because Christ must be human. Remember what what Gregory of Nazianzus said. What he did not assume, what he does not assume, he does not heal. So he must be human. And we don't want to just mix them together because if we mix the two natures together, the human is lost utterly in the divine, in in its immensity. You could say the other way around. It would be impossible uh, for the divine nature to have any human attributes. Otherwise, it's not by definition divine anymore. So you can't mix the two natures. But they must be united intimately in a mysterious way that, 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 that we cannot understand united in the one person. Well, Nestorius was overscrupulous. He, he, very, he parsed his terms. Uh, he, when he spoke of the human nature, he would use the term Jesus alone. Jesus always just refers to the human nature. Son of God refers just to the divine nature. And so he, he, he made these distinctions that in effect separated the two natures within the one person so that they were acting almost as if the natures were acting themselves as persons act. But we know that natures don't act. It's the persons who act through their nature. Our human nature doesn't die, per se. We die because we have a human nature. And so we die through our human nature. Well, you have the term hypostatic union, which we can say is this. Two natures actually united in the oneness of a single acting subject or a single acting person. That's the hypostatic union. And the term actually came into being just at this point in the Nestorian controversy precisely because what Nestorius was positing was more of a hypostatic conjunction. And you think of uh, in grammar conjunction, you have the word and or or, and it, 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 it links two words, but the words are not united themselves. They're just in a conjunction uh, two or three letters between the two words, but the two words are still separate. They're not united. It's, it's not an intimate union of the two words, in other words. So that was Nestorius's idea. He said, no, it, it's not a union. It's not a, it's not a hypostatic union. It's a hypostatic conjunction. That's the word that he liked. And the way he, this can be defined is two natures not actually united, but merely juxtaposed or associated and acting as their persons themselves within the one person. And again, we say natures don't act. It's the person who acts by the natures. And so this is Nestorian's view, Nestorius's view. Not the person, the natures themselves act as persons within the human body. So it's not actually the Son of God, but it's his human nature that, that, that is conceived, that is born, that weeps, that dies, and so forth. You see the problem with Nestorius. He's, he's so concerned with the distinction of the two natures uh, that he's, he's separating them within the person. It's no longer a union in the biblical sense of the word. 
He cannot bring himself to say, God purchased the church with his blood. Nestorius could not bring himself to say things like that. Or if he did, he would define it in such a way uh, that it, it really explained away the issue. Well, this is a rule. It's another rule. It's a Christological rule. We say what is true of either nature is true of the Word made flesh. What is true of either nature is true of the Son of God, the Word made flesh. This, this has, the, the rule is official, actually. It's a dogmatic rule, and it's called in Latin, you may have heard this term, the communicatio idiomatum, which simply means the communication of properties. And when we say communication of properties, we don't say that the, 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 the human nature and the divine nature communicate what is distinctive of them to the other nature. No, it's the two natures communicate what is proper and distinct in each of them to the one person. That's why it's a hypostatic union. So you can't, otherwise they're not distinct if they're communicating properties to each nature. They're communicating it together, respectively, in their proper spheres to the one person. So, again, we, we can say, because the Holy Spirit says, God purchased the church with, with his own blood. There you have God, that's the divine. His own blood, that's the human. They're not juxtaposed, but they're united. So that the language we use is very mysterious. And, and, I, and I use the word mysterious very carefully because you, you, you think of the text, 1 Timothy 3.16. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's, that's the language of the communicatio idiomatum. So this is what Athanasius said. The Word Himself endured the nails when He saw them fixed in His own body. That's beautiful language. And it's gospel language. The Word Himself endured the nails when He saw them fixed in His own body. He was the one suffering. Suffering insofar as the body which was His very own suffered. It was His body. And therefore when the body suffered, we can say He suffered in His body. Again, it's dangerous language. But it's very crucial we don't give this up or shy away from it because we're afraid that, that we're, we're, we're bringing down the divine nature. That, this is what God did. He did it for us men and for our salvation. Not the divine nature. And the divine nature never suffers, cannot be passable. But the Son of God who is divine was able through His human nature to do just that, to suffer and to die. And our salvation lies solidly on that bulwark. If that is not what happened, we cannot be saved. So, to finish Athanasius' quote, Suffering he did insofar as the body which was his very own suffered, yet not suffering insofar as the word as pure God is impassable. And so, it's very Christologically orthodox for us to say with Athanasius, that it's not the human nature merely that's passable. And I know I keep repeating myself, but it's just, it's such a wonderful and a lovely and a powerful point. It's not the human nature merely that's passable, but Christ, the Word of God, is both passable and impassable according to His respective natures. And that's the essence of the hypostatic union. It's a mysterious doctrine, but we believe it because the Bible teaches it. So the teaching of Nestorius to bring all this to an end the teaching of Nestorius was condemned, 431, the Council of Ephesus. And then 20 years later, the Council of Chalcedon commenced, 
451, Council of Chalcedon. And here, and I want to quote in part the statement because you see everything we've been saying all rolled into one. They've taken each of the, the, the uh, controversies and brought them all together. And so now here is presented the glorious person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man. This is the words of the definition, as it's called, of Chalcedon. Our Lord Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial, that's homoousios, with the Father, according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us, homoousios, with us, according to the manhood, in all things like us, yet without sin, begotten before all ages, of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I, 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 I might be saying too much, but I, when you read this and you think about what is involved in the glorious person of our Lord Jesus Christ, it should make us weep when we think of what, how He condescended in His divine nature to assume our flesh for our salvation. Well, now he's perfectly fitted. We've gone through the conception, the incarnation. We're in the hypostatic union. And now he's going to develop in the womb, be born, perfectly fitted, as I said, to assume the office of mediator, particularly as prophet, priest, and king of his church. So uh, let's close in prayer. Father, bless us as you have through our Lord Jesus Christ. How great, how marvelous is your salvation. In the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.